Welcome to Comfortable Place on the Couch, a short-run podcast exploring every Midnight Oil album in the run-up to their 2017 Great Circle Tour. My name is Darren Folds, and in the coming months, I'll be spinning every Midnight Oil studio album from my comfortable place on the couch, as well as taking a listen to some of their EPs, live recordings, and video releases. Joining me each episode is my longtime friend and fellow Midnight Oil enthusiast, Robin Harbrin. How are you doing tonight, Mr. Harbrin? I'm doing well, Mr. Folds. Thank you. Just returned from the USA, seeing one of my favorite old bands, the 77s. Ooh, exciting. And I got called Mr. Canada while you I know was what? down there. When I think of like, you know, like those bodybuilding tournaments like Mr. Universe and Mr. USA, when I think of Mr. Canada, I always think of you. <laughs> Well, thanks. Yeah. So is there any business arising from the previous episode that we have to cover? I think there's a few things. Uh, Apparently, we did not pronounce the name of a certain beach. Correctly. Correctly at all. So you're going to try. Well, it's easy. That's uh, Coogee Beach. Oh, yeah? Oh, yeah. Okay. Coogee. Coogee. You think so, eh? (laughs) So hard to know. What those Australians are saying? Yeah. I was given, yes, one of one of our listeners let us know, and they said, could, like the word could, and G, like G whiz. You sure that's what they said? That's what they typed. Okay. So, yeah. could G. Could G. There's something else that we forgot to do. Yes. We forgot to get rid of an album. Yes, we did. So we've, we're going to play this game with the Blue Album. Of course, you start with the Blue Album, then it was versus Head Injuries, and we kept both... Threw away the blue album, kept in injuries. That's right. And then we did our bird noises episode and yeah. we forgot yes. to make we forgot a decision. To play it. So I will definitely keep head injuries. I decided I was gonna keep head injuries. Yeah, too. if 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 only because there's a lot more songs to listen to. That's a good reason. So last show I forgot to credit the book that I've been using for a lot of our information. Mm-hmm. It's called Midnight Oil The Journey. Beds Are Burning by Mark Dodson. So shout out to Mark. And if you're interested in all this Midnight Oil history, buy his book. Other business. We want to talk about Midnight Oil actually making a triumphant return just a couple nights uh, ago. Yeah. Actually playing for real at Selena's. Coogee Bay. (laughs) Playing a giant set of something like 29 songs like two and a half hours almost two and a half hours playing almost all of head injuries and alive in like which they've never done before and they actually apparently played most of 1098 as well like all but three songs it looked fantastic yeah they only played like five bones era songs mm. total really it was like 24 pre yeah pre bones what was fantastic was Seeing Stand in Line, mm. the song that famously Bones detractors. Oh, he can't play that. He can't play that. Therefore, you know, Bones is the inferior bassist. But he ripped through it. Yes, he was not singing at the same time. He was heads down, really focusing. But he played it. He played it well. He did. He played it really well. And uh, so that was fantastic to see, to put that put that to rest the monkey off the back, That's whatever you right. want to say. That's over with. Also want to talk about people who use their phones at gigs. Yes. It is annoying. It is. And, and I've seen some people. So yep. so here's my take on it. Okay. 
as somebody way up here in in Canada, I totally appreciate when there's a oh yeah a band I can't see. I'm really glad that some people bring out their phones. Yep. Okay, but when I'm at a gig, get your phone out of my get face. Get your phone on my face. Okay, so here's the deal. When I'm at a gig, whenever possible, you keep your phone like against your chest or get right against your face or That's something. Right. If your eyes can see the stage, put your yeah. phone where your eyes are. That's right. I'm not looking through your head. Yeah. So you're not going to block Here's me. the deal. Think about the people behind you. If you're going to try and record with your phone, put the phone where it's not going to block anybody else's view, yep. just your own. Block yep. your own view with it. Yep. Yeah. And that's the rule. I'm figuring... To me. When we're in Toronto for the show, yep. there's going to be no good reason for me to take any video... I'm not interested in it. I'm just going to get in there and have a good time. My exception would be if they play stand in line and I have a good line on Bones. Yep. I'm going to keep the camera on him the entire set. And if I can like turn around and get a nice selfie with the band behind me, I'll do that too. (laughs) But I'm not going to hold it up for an entire song. Yeah. So, Robin, we've just been listening to the third Midnight Oil album, 1981's Place Without a Postcard. What do you think we're going to be talking about tonight? We're going to be talking about the recording process with famous producer Glenn Johns, and the band had some hopes uh, for this album that didn't fully materialize. Oh. Well, didn't at all materialize. <laughs> so I think we're going to be talking about that. And remind me what else we're going to be talking about, Darren. All that lovely bass chorus. No, I don't want to talk about that as one of the highlights. Okay. And then we'll be running through talking about the songs. Including potentially the best song that they have yet recorded. Wow. As we tend to do, we like to divide our discussion of the album into two sections. First, we'll take an overview of the entire album and talk about the sound, the lyrical and musical themes, and how the album flows. And then after that, we'll take a closer look at some of the songs on the album, talk about our favorites, and pull them apart a little bit. And here's what Place Without Postcards sounds like. Crowded in the eye of Odin 
And the voices got higher and higher To the man at the back with the tickets in his hat He would have to do more than aspire to without a postcard yes it's almost like a new era in the oils it's the first full album of the 80s for them to me it sounds like they're coming into their own with sounds that we're going to be hearing throughout the entire 80s now they're in some ways they're kind of leaving that pub rock sound behind that punkiness behind picking up some new sonic textures and and ways of doing things yeah you could call this arguably post-punk in some ways yeah it's not that punk style that comes after the original wave of punk but this is yeah it's not like it's new wave music that you're hearing in the 80s but it's definitely kind of heading more in that direction than staying with the punk sound the pub rock sound i'm liking it i'm digging it yeah i'm liking the keyboards i'm liking the effects it's a good album it is a great album um, what do you know about the recording? This album was the first time with a big producer. Big name. Big name producer, Glyn Johns. And uh, they went to England to record the album. They thought they'd be working with him at Olympic Studios in London, mm-hmm. which is where he recorded with The Who and The Stones. Yeah. But Glyn had just built a new stu- studio out at his farm yeah. in West Sussex. I was watching a, a video this last week um, with Rob talking about the recording of Armistice Day. And he was talking about how they went out to this country farm yeah. to, to do re- the recording. <laughs> so they went out to this farm and uh, they were trying to record, but they were frequently interrupted by Glenn's uh, trips to London. He would just take off because he had business in London, okay. leaving the band there at the, at the farm. Giffo had all kinds of spare time. They were baling hay. Glenn wanted to be a farmer, but you know he was always taken off, so he had various people doing the work, including the bands who were <laughs> recording there at the time. The hay kept falling off the trailer because all the sides were, were buggered. So when Glenn was in doing some recording work, guitar overdubs or something, I went out and ripped all the boards off of his trailer, got down to a bare chassis, and scraped all the steel and painted it, and scraped the wheels and painted them. And he's looking out the window, oh my God, what happened to my trailer? To me, it was an easy job, but Glenn's not a very practical, handy sort of person. Anyway, I got it all fixed up, says Giffo, fixing that. Very nice. Yeah, that's what was going on. And the other thing was what would happen is if the oils didn't have their song totally ready, didn't have it all polished, they'd be playing it. Glenn really wanted the first take of every song. Oh, yeah. Like that, you know, not the first time he heard it, but he wanted to hear it, say, yeah, that's good. We're going to record that and keep the first take. Yeah. That's how he worked. Uh, so sometimes they have things not ready enough. He would just get up and walk out. He'd say, I'd rather be having fun on my tractor than listening to this crap. <laughs> so that's apparently what would happen. Jim really didn't get along because Jim was used to being in charge of the music a lot more. Yeah. So I was going to say, so they show up in London to work with this big name producer guy. He's probably got some ideas of the directions he, wa- he wants to take the album. Yeah. Want to do some new things. How did the band take it? Yeah. Jim 
didn't take it so well. Jim apparently really didn't like working with him because Jim would have ideas and that would totally put Glenn out. Like, yeah, yeah he'd be like, no, that's not how we're, you know. Because Jim was basically like the idea guy, the arranger the type arranger, guy. The arranger, yeah. He was the one uh, that really pushed them in different musical ideas. Yep. And he'd want to do a little thing here and there on the album. He was about to mix the trilogy of Quinella, Ned Kelly, and Love's on Sale. And I came up with a little idea. Before we do that, can we put like a little synth line and a cowbell in the chorus? And he looked at me, this is looking at Jim, and said, are you trying to ruin my life? He did it really reluctantly with very bad grace. I couldn't wait to get out of the place. Glenn seemed to thrive on conflict and what it produces, but sometimes he was really rude, really opinionated. At the time, I thought, I hate this guy. I really hate him. At the time, he really didn't didn't like like the process. I've read a lot online of people saying, oh, don't like the direction that, that they decide to take with this album. I did like the direction they decide to take with the album. Yeah. I think this is an album that gradually is picking up more and more fans, uh, fans of the older albums. Yep. Uh, I really like this album. What I really enjoyed about Head Injuries was the fact that you could see where they were, the trajectory that they were heading with that album. They had a lot of Blue Album type material on Head Injuries, and then they had some more of this forward-looking stuff. And I think with Place Without a Postcard, you really start to hear them coming into that Mm -hmm. um, musical area. They're getting a little bit more electronic. Um, They're slowing things down. They're not, every song doesn't have to be a tour de force of drums and guitars and screaming and stuff like that. You're getting even more musical variety, different sounds in different songs. It's a very enjoyable album that way for me. Yeah. There are some elements to the album that I think could have been done better. On a whole, the album seems like it's 80% of the energy level that it should be. Yeah. There's a there's a few times in the album I'm thinking, oh, this is a great song. I can't wait till they get to that part where they really kick it. And it just doesn't quite get there for yeah, me. Yeah, and Glyn John's production is sometimes criticized as being uh, a bit muddy, a bit... Um, yeah. Yeah, and uh, I haven't heard the full remastered version of this, but apparently this album, of all the albums, okay. has improved the most Oh yeah, uh, through the remastering process. Apparently this album would have sounded even worse. Okay, here's another quote from uh, Midnight Oil, The Journey. Once the songs were recorded and mixed, Jim still had reservations with the overall sound. There were a lot of problems with the speed of the record. It sounded slow to me when we got to the test pressings. I got really antsy about it. It was like Glenn's tape machine recorded too fast so that when it played back, it was slow on other machines. Mm. It wasn't an even pitch. The whole thing was flat and it sounded really slow and leaden. It got to the stage where I actually rang up the master engineer in LA, Doug Sachs, and said, look, here's a tuning fork. Can you tune up the tape to this tuning fork? Here's a song that's in A. And he did. He said, you're right, it's flat. If you record something fast, uh, then when you play it back normally, it sounds slower and flatter Mm. and less bright and so on. Yeah. Um, Interesting. So, and and just to back this up, uh, this is Jim again. When I look back on it now, I think Glidden did a superb job because he understood what the band sounded like despite our best intentions and what we thought records should be like at that time. Hmm. He loved what the band sounded like and didn't think it needed a lot of augmentation. And I look back on it now and see why he wanted just to use first takes. So that's kind of Jim 
despite all the negative things he said or, or the things he felt at the time, he thought that Glenn did actually have a good perspective on the band. Right on. Yeah, and did the right thing. We, we talked about this before, but this is when, after they finished recording Place without a postcard, Glenn Johns got them to support The Who oh, yeah. in Birmingham, which was the opening night of The Who's world tour. So they played in front of 11,000 Who fans. Mm-hmm. And that's when The Who offered them the spot to play on their 56-date tour of the USA. Wow. But meanwhile, they had their album and they had a tour back in Australia. Yep. All lined up. Yep. And being true to themselves. Being true to themselves. And being sick of being away. Some of them. Sure. Especially Jim, apparently, uh, they decided to go back to turn down a chance to tour with the Who. Tour with the Who all through the US. And they just record this new album. But the record label executives didn't believe in Place Without a Postcard. They weren't ready for that. So. Yeah, we often, we've talked, you know, how come Midnight Oil isn't as big as U2? Right. How come, you know, why didn't they make it like some other bands of their era did that in some ways are very similar? Yeah, and this is, there. there's, uh, you know, maybe three or four big decisions that yep. the band made uh, that really were, seemed to be very big breaks, big chances that yep. they didn't take. And maybe that's why. As far as themes throughout the album go, I think that there's a real good definition between the first and the second side of the album. I don't know if, if you noticed this, but I think it's pretty easy to look at the, the trilogy on the backside. Yeah. Um, Quinella, Love's On Sale, Ned Kelly as being a unit that fits together thematically. Yeah. I think that you could probably even bring in Bernie and Lucky Country to that if you wanted to, to stretch the theme a bit. Why not? On, <laughs> that's what I like to do. So I do that. It's a fun album to listen to as far as grouping songs together and, and seeing some themes. I think the first half of the album, there are some themes that you see through a couple of the songs, but they're more of, more standalone type songs, which is cool. Yeah, you've got your, your trapped on life's treadmill songs like Brave Faces. You've got your labor strife songs, perhaps, with someone else to blame. Yeah. War and conflict with Armistice Day, perhaps. Although there might be something, an extra layer of stuff going on with that song. Again, written in the heart, violence and oppression, perhaps war type thing going on. Of course, that's from side B. Mm-hmm. And I think that, I think of side B as the ode to the everyman Australian, perhaps. Um, yeah. It's, it's the relatable side of the album, and Basement Flat would fit well, I think, on, on that second side. So you would move Written in the Heart to side A and Basement Flat to B? Yeah, like as far For as theme, as far as theme yeah. goes. But you and I were talking why it was a good idea to end side A with Basement Flat. Typically, a on a record, you start off with your loudest, fastest songs. Mm-hmm. And as you get towards the end of the record, you put your quieter ones for for a physical reason that the grooves in a record uh the further in you go yep. the quicker the rotation yep. and the th- yeah um so there's actual physical properties of of record that lends itself to that order oh yeah uh not that you have to do it but sound quality can suffer sure uh, somewhat if you don't you were telling me that um the record execs wanted the oils to go back and and change up the record because it was too Australian centric at one point, right? I believe what happened is A and M records in the UK 
passed up on taking the album. Like they they had first dibs on it. Yeah. And they yeah. passed it because they thought it was too yeah, Australian? Yeah, they just thought it was too, yeah. They just didn't think it would sell in the UK. What What are some of these big Australian things that maybe I'm missing that they were seeing? Oh, well, it's it's full of the lingo, isn't it? Like, isn't it yeah. like anything? but you can get past that, can't you? Oh, uh, Maybe not. Not, not maybe... record executives <laughs> and not, not TV executives either. You would think that the UK wasn't as guilty of it, but for sure in the US... Everything from the original Mad Max movie where they overdubbed everybody, like all the Australian, sure. you know, the original the Mad Max. Actors. Yeah, yeah. They, they had American voices redo everything. Uh, things like the Philosopher's Stone, uh, the Sorcerers, like Harry Potter, yeah. I'm talking about. Oh, yeah, yeah. In the US. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So I'm just saying yeah. that's a common mentality. Yeah, that's true. So you hear things about this Australian folk hero, they said, well, nobody's going to get that. Yeah, who's this Ned Kelly guy? Exactly. No what's one's going to crack what's, a book and figure out what that what's is. What's Quinella? What's, um, but you know what? What's Bernie? What's Armistice? What's, we didn't know what this stuff, you might've known a bit more because you'd spent a few years in Australia, Yeah. but I would have no clue what a Quinella was. I didn't know what a Quinella holiday was. I know what it is now, Yeah. but even listening to the song as a teenager, I'm thinking, oh, it sounds like, I thought the Quinella was the name of a ship. And I thought, oh, well, you know, this the idea of this is like, this guy's just waiting for his ship to come in. Yeah. I could figure out the it song quite easily without knowing exactly what a Quinella was. Yeah. I didn't know who Ned Kelly was, but I kind of got the gist of it by listening to the song. Yeah. It seems executives like to underestimate the intelligence of the listener mm-hmm. and they feel like they got dumb things down. Yeah. Uh, with all sorts of popular, whether it's music or... Uh, TV, movies, whatever. Yeah, it's like no, that won't be popular with the mainstream. The mainstream is dumb. Yeah, the mainstream can't handle foreign things. Yeah, yeah. I was thinking about something this afternoon, looking at music as entertainment versus looking at music as an art form. Yeah, when you're looking at music as entertainment, you d- you do need to dumb it down. You need to appeal to the broadest, lowest base that you can. But I guess the oils never were that. They weren't entertainers. In that way, they wrote and sang about the things they wanted to write and sing about. They were more, and they are more, artists than entertainers, although they're quite entertaining. So I guess I can understand how... Yeah, you could argue they've always been true, true artists. They've always been true to themselves. I think true to their true fans as well. It's always been about them keeping that integrity. We just want to send out a great big thank you to everyone who's listening to the podcast right now. It's been such an encouragement to read all the thoughtful and kind comments that have been sent our way. And it's a great incentive for us to keep the episodes rolling out. So we invite you to get in touch with us. We're on Twitter at DarrenTheFolds and at Robin Harbron. Show notes are online at DarrenFolds.com podcasts. Of course, you can subscribe to Comfortable Place on the Couch, a Midnight Oil podcast on iTunes and Google Play. And if you are so inclined, rating and reviewing the podcast is super helpful. Thanks again. All right, back to Comfortable Place on the Couch, a Midnight Oil podcast. 
Robin and I are talking about 1981's Place Without a Postcard tonight. And this is the part of the podcast where I get to ask Mr. Harbrin about the bottom end. The bottom end. Mr. Harbrin, what stood out to you in Place Without a Postcard as far as the bottom end, the bass parts go? Definitely Giffo's playing is is great on this album. I'm going to get the negative over Here with right away. Here comes the criticism sandwich. Yeah. His playing is great, but... <laughs> He's really using a lot of chorus on some of the songs. The effect called chorus, yes. which is basically uh, you plug your bass in to this pedal and... It uh, multiplies the sound. It multiplies hear... the sound and slightly detunes them. So it sounds like a whole bunch of them slightly out of tune with one another yep. and gives a much thicker sound than normal. Yes. Uh, and it's all over the place on uh, what's on several of the songs. And you don't think that this is a fabulous thing? I, I just don't really like that chorus sound. Uh, and it's not something against uh, Giffo or the Oils. It, it was getting used on quite a few albums in the 80s. There was a lot of chorus bass. Yep. Uh, I've got that pedal for my bass. And you know what? I love it. Yeah. When I when I hear that chorus on the bass, I'm thinking, oh yeah, this is what I've been waiting for. This is what I'm looking for. Oh, we're going to get more of this in the coming albums too. I I like the bass chorus. Yeah. Yeah. It's um, It can sometimes be effective, but it's just not, it's just not my thing. That said, there's good playing. And you know what? I, I think... If I have to just choose my favorite bass playing on the album, it's just going to be with Don't Want to Be the One, Mm -hmm. the opener. Yep. There's lots of good just driving bass, which is what you think a bass player should be, just sometimes hitting those eighth notes. Yeah. Yeah. But he's got all kinds of little riffs, uh, all kinds of kind of call and response where the bass actually stops playing for Mm -hmm. uh, a full bar or a good part of a bar and then joins in again. Little turnaround riffs, um, joins in with the guitars at times, and other times is doing his own thing. Yeah, it's got that fun little, I called it the the bass chord, yes. the two-note bass chord. Does this distinct, it's two bass notes at once. When you try to play a chord on a bass, it's almost always jarring, kind mm-hmm. of dissonant. It's reminiscent of uh, that note, I think it's at the end of Bus to Bondi, where there's this... Uh, this big note. So it's a, it's this idea of uh, chords don't usually work on on bass guitars, especially not when they're just hit hard. Mm-hmm. Uh, but can be used to this kind of effect. What about someone else to blame? The beginning of someone else to blame yes. has got this crazy bass sliding all over yeah, the place. Yeah, now it's super chorusy. So there's good slidey bass in there, uh, and just throughout the album. Although the prominence of the bass really comes and goes, uh, mm-hmm. at least on this original. I've got it on vinyl, CD, the original releases yep. of it, and there's times where it just isn't mixed in as prominently as I would like. At times, the plane is uh, it's solid, but it's not inventive. Uh, it's not inventive yeah. all the time, and that's not necessarily Giffo's fault. Nope. It's sometimes it's a case the producer says, "Do that," and then thank you, and yeah. you're done. And you know, Giffo's like, "I was just getting warmed up," or "Okay, well, I'll go bail some bail hay. some hay," or "Go build you a new a new tractor or whatever." I'll go fix your tractor for you then. Yeah. So, Mr. Folds, 
Tell me about some drums. You know what? I really enjoy Don't Want to Be the One as well. Yeah. I, I put that down for my favorite drum song. Although, right. you know, there's lots of good drums throughout. Oh, yeah. Um, but um, the fills at the beginning and then, like, towards the beginning of the song and then at, at the end of the song. It's a real strong way to start the album yes. and to get your drums in there and to be pounding away on them. I really enjoyed that. Yeah, it's funny that we're choosing this because Don't Want to Be the One is actually... I think it's the simplest song on the album, where maybe it's only a three-chord kind of song. It's definitely not not my favorite song on the album. It's not a song I dislike, but it's not... I like the song, but we're saying the best bass and drum performances are on it, despite it not being our favorite song on the album by, by quite a stretch, actually. That said, Lucky Country, it seems like Rob gets a genuine drum solo in Lucky Country. Terracotta homes, backyard barbecue and eucalyptus smell, it's fine on the clothesline, there's fast food and slow life and red roof, my silence, comic interruptions. That's great to hear him actually finally laying down, not just Tom Phil's and, and playing around, but like, here's a good old solo for us. Yeah. In the last couple albums, when we've been talking about drums, we've, we've been talking about time signatures as well and how uh, usually a couple songs get some funky, crazy time signature type things happening. Yeah. Didn't notice that. No. In Place Without a Postcard. In Armistice Day, about a minute into the song, just as they're kind of picking up to the main part of it, there's a single beat bar that they throw in there just to throw you off, just to kind of give you a little ka-chunk yeah. as it kind of starts into the main part of the song. So that was kind of interesting. Love's On Sale is interesting to me as far as drums go. They almost get that 2-4 punk beat going on in there. Yeah, It sounds like a really quick type thing going on. Really kind of gets me bopping along with that one. Yeah. And Written in the Heart has some really heavy toms going on. He, he kind of, Rob, foregoes the, the hats and the ride symbol there for a while and just lays it down on the toms and the snare. And so that gives it that really good, low, laying a beat down kind of feeling to the song that I enjoy. Yep. Nothing it's like Rob, a good beat down. <laughs> Rob's laying the beats, beat downs. <laughs> Basement Flat has a strange percussion-y type sound going on like a knocking rolling machine what always sounded like a winding clock to me but is that what you think it is well that's maybe that's what it sounded like to me there's a real nice lull in the song during that part yeah yeah and and uh pete says some kind of off the cuff i get down on my knees and pray down on my knees and pray and 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 then there's the kind of guitar phil does its instrumental bit in there yeah and then he says... On your feet, boy. On your feet, boy, yeah. And you know what's interesting about Basement Flat is it, to me, when I'm thinking about how that song is written, that section kind of divides the song into two. There's the, there's the front half of the song where they're thinking about, okay, is this, is this time to make a clean break in my life here? It almost seems like the front half of the song is kind of asking questions, you know, what am I going to do? I'm in this rundown basement flat with the rats and the leaking sink yeah. and the noisy neighbors and stuff like that. And it seems like you get 
this kind of middle break to it. And then coming out of that, it sounds like the resolve is there. And it's almost the same words that are being sung. You come in after that break to must be time for a new idea. It almost sounds like the resolve is there to actually, okay, we're going to do it now. Let's pack up. Let's get out of here. Yeah. Yeah. So that's, that's an enjoyable song. Basement Flat is neat. You get a, you got a few different fun things happening in the song. It's like yeah. one of those three for the price of one songs. Yeah. The intro's really neat. It's, uh, it's like distant. Mm-hmm. It's just Pete and an acoustic guitar. Oh, that's right. And it sounds far off. Yeah. And he sings the first verse. And then suddenly the whole band repeats that verse. The whole band comes in. Up, a semitone, Oh, I believe. It's a key change. Neat. Yeah, and uh, goes up a key change, and then the whole band hits, and they do the song over again. I always thought it was kind of ironic to hear, of course, this is Pete in character, mm-hmm. but it sounds funny him complaining uh, about making so much noise with their electrical toys. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, when I think of Bones saying, it's the loudest thing I've ever heard. Yeah. Written on the Heart is a neat song. It's probably within my top three favorites on this album. It's a neat song taking all these different snippets of images. I don't think like there's a linear story happening or anything going on. I think we're just being given these little pictures into things that are happening yeah and we're given this chorus or this refrain that that happens the last line of each verse yeah exactly slogans that used to be written on the wall pictures that used to be scrolled on the wall words that used to be written on the wall now written written in in the the heart heart. yeah it's almost like taking a look at at the screws really being tightened on the person and not even being able to express what's going on outwardly and just having to have it all inside. That's a really interesting song. Yeah. A lot to think about with it. It's got a really cool, warbly, echoey guitar solo type thing with the yeah. tremolo bar hap- going on there. Yeah, and uh, this is a kind of a common gym tone i assume it's jim magini mm-hmm. and to me it always sounds like he's playing backwards but yeah. without benefit of the actual backwards tape yeah, not in the studio playing something back backwards yeah. but he kind of gets that sound yeah out of his guitar where, where it's got a very gradual attack yep like normally when you pluck a string on a guitar it immediately goes up to full volume yep. and then decays yeah but with this effect in addition to all the warbles and everything going yep. on you hit the note and it grows mm-hmm. and then slowly, relatively slowly, I'm not talking about it taking really long time, but it's got yep. that gradual effect. And then towards the end of the song, there's the co-solo with the warbly guitar and the harmonica coming in. Yes. And uh, what I wrote down is like a glassy harmonic guitar accent coming in. Just some really neat sonic happenings in the song that make it quite enjoyable. Talking about interesting effects. The beginning of Armistice Day. There's the piano. Yeah, a big piano chord. And then it almost sounds like there's like a delay effect on it or something. And they slowly turn off the delay effect or something happens and it just pitches way down. (laughs) 
Yeah, I don't know if that's a if that's the piano itself or just like a an organ, keyboard, maybe even the bass mm-hmm. uh, is matching like the root of right. that, and then that's what gets bent way down. Oh, it's a fantastic effect. Yeah, I love the beginning really of that good. song. Yeah. And Armistice Day uh, has a real moodiness to it, the sparseness. Uh, that reminds me of profiteers yeah. from head injuries. Sure, the military-like drums. Yeah, it, about again the marching drums. Exactly the left, right, yeah. left, right, and with just tons of reverb on, like when when he hits that snare. Yep, it's like Shh. on the surface, Armistice Day. Oh, this is in in Canada. We have Remembrance Day. Yes, right, and and this is kind of the equivalent for the Australians, right? That's right. But there's something else going on to this song, eh? Hey, that might have been my first real A. <laughs> yeah. There seems to be something else going on with this song. Yeah. Than... I Like, the verses seem to be about a journalist, because even the second verse, mm-hmm. I went looking for a headline, yep. uh, got talking to the back line, they'd never seen the action. Exactly. Yeah. So... But the beginning of the last verse there... The fixers do the fixin', the locals do the lynching. Just wondering if that's talking about some of the uncovered, the non-reported uh, conflicts. Yeah, or the official news, or if the government wants to hold a certain line sure. on, on a on a war. Yep. Um, policies. They, yeah, they want they want the public support, and they only want uh, what sounds right, what fits the story. Yep. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. A really interesting song. It's fun to listen to musically as well, and it totally got a check mark on my list of top songs for the album. Well, how about we talk about Brave Faces? Okay. Even though I don't have much to say about it. All right. Give us a <laughs> thought or two, because I got a thought or two. I just like that there were a lot of parts to it as well. They are keeping this element of their prog rock still alive on this album. Many sections sure. to the song. Yeah. yeah. And this song's it's really got a great groove that kind of goes through the whole song, too. Really enjoy that. Pete almost has like a, a, a Jim Morrison, Dorsey kind of sound uh, to his vocals at one point. When we dance, when we dance all the night, all the night. And then there's the fun distortion solo over the riff that builds towards the end of the song there. And as a bass player, I'm sure you like the the extended turnaround that we get in Brave Faces on the bass. It's got he really extends that turnaround. He really extends that turnaround. You're right. So let's talk about side B. Let's talk about Quinella Holiday, Love's on Sale, and If Ned Kelly Was King. The trilogy. The trilogy. Okay. What's a quinella? Quinella is a particular bet, a horse bet. Yep. It's uh, not essential to understanding the song. No, but but it's it's betting on the horses. Yep. And uh, if it happens, there's a payout, a yep. good payout. And I think that kind of sets us up for what's going on in these three songs. When I listen to Quinella Holiday, I'm hearing of a fella who is, who's dreaming for a better life, not necessarily a, a life of luxury, 
but he ends up making his life worse through gambling. Yeah, he's dreaming of a better life, of buying, having his own, his dr- own place, in his the own country. dream house. Yeah, yeah, that's what he wants. And but his hope rests on winning a bet, as opposed to just getting a job and working. I shouldn't. Yeah, <laughs> but you don't know if that's what it is or not. Yeah, yeah. So Cornell is just uh, really about somebody hoping, and it doesn't work out. Yep. intro to Quinella, just that the guitar riff type thing going there to me that's a really groovy funky almost mysterious kind of sounding perhaps even surfy uh riff going on that surf, i really enjoy a little bit of uh were you saying earlier detective uh... yeah it kind of gives me that 70s detective vibe <laughs> yeah and it's fun that they bring that back in ned kelly as well yes to kind of yeah bookend. it ties bookends the the trilogy. And I think like through the entire song you've got a really nice slinky riffy groove going yep. very enjoyable. Quinella runs right into Love's on Sale. Yeah. Kind of got this fuzzy, rumbly sound. Yeah. It kind of drops out a little bit and then it comes back again later. It's one of those sounds that the band uses from time to time that I enjoy, along with the chorusy basses and the <laughs> and the pulsing keyboard type thing that assists the drums. Yeah, that's his his mini moog, is it? Probably. But when the drums kick in, it's got this two four punk beat happening that really brings a lot of energy to the song. Love's on Sale might be risque and explicit. It's arguably about prostitution or at least an escort mm-hmm. service, so to speak. But I think they're also taking the bigger picture here about yeah. comparing the commercialism of life to that. I agree. Um, yeah. It's it's more, it's, it's again, again, it's one of these songs of somebody having dreams of buying into this good life yeah. that they don't have. Have it now, pay for it later. Yeah, you can you can get what you want. But I think the person's finding some conflict with it because it's like, I'm being told I can have whatever I want, but, but I always can't. have to pay. I have to pay exactly. And, yeah. Musically, is there other, anything fun going on here that you want to talk about? That riff, that descending where the guitar is... Oh yeah, do 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 woohoo yeah yay way I like the woohoos and the yeehaws that Pete throws in. Yeah, I'm not sure they're yeehaws, but yes, the yeah yeahs. Yeah, it ends very very upbeat with a a rapid. With that fun little riff, fun little riff goes right down and suddenly stop and it reveals this. Really thick synth bass, yep. synthesizer bass, and then that drum assist, yeah, that we've heard that we heard on head injuries, yeah, and then here it is on this album, and that certainly plays heavily on ten nine eight, yep, great transition into Ned Kelly that way, yeah, and then the the beginning of Ned Kelly is this uh, slow uh, intro, slow yep. moody intro to sound like a Canadian who doesn't know anything, yeah. Ned Kelly is an Australian Robin Hood type figure. Yeah. He's much more than that. He's a bad dude with cool <laughs> armor and 
murderous intentions. Yeah, yeah. He uh, he grew up. He he felt wronged by the police. He felt there was corruption and so on, uh, and became a bush ranger. He became mm-hmm. a. Is a, that like a Northwest Mounted Policeman? Well, no. It's like uh, just going off in the bush okay. and making a living. Okay. Out there in the bush. Yeah. But it's it did involve some robbery. Yeah. Uh, and at one point he felt it was kill or be killed with right. the police. Right. Well, he became yep. an outlaw yep. at that point. He's the kind of figure that, that not everybody views in the same way. No. Because everybody's complex. But, you know, some people do see him as the Robin Hood type character, yes. right? Whereas other people just really see him as a bad dude outlaw. Just the outlaw, outlaw, yeah. Um, in this song, Ned Kelly is, is the Robin Hood guy. He seems to be the hero in this song, at least from the perspective of... Like whoever the narrator, the character, the character yeah. singing this song, he's going to set things right. Yeah. If there was a if Ned if, Kelly is the guy who could fix this world. Obviously, Ned yeah. Kelly was hung. He was executed yep. for being a robber yep. and a murderer. Yep. Uh, but in this case, if the tables were turned, uh, who would he be putting away? Well, sure. probably he'd be putting away the corrupt politicians could and be. police yep. and so on. That he railed against in his manifesto. The idea of, you know, just kind of coming into the into the area, taking what you can get out of it, whether it be resources, whether it be tourism, and not leaving anything behind for the people who live there type idea. Yeah. So, so the, looking for some sort of justice. Yeah, that's right. It's looking for justice. If Ned Kelly was king, he'd make those robbers swing. Again, we've got somebody looking for someone to come in and make things better for them. Yeah. So it is a pretty, it's a very favorable view of Ned Kelly mm-hmm. from this perspective. And this isn't just like a redneck guy complaining. So it's interesting that this character, whoever it is, seems to be pretty, is portrayed in a sympathetic way. Mm-hmm. You might say the person also feels powerless. Sure. So they're hoping. Exactly. Yeah, it's, it's kind of this. Republican versus Democrat thing in the states of right, you know. Why don't you just you're you're poor because you're lazy, you're right. oh, and yeah. so on. Yep. Uh, versus no, where some people are truly oppressed. Yep. And they can't fight back, and that, that's what they're hoping for. They hope for a lottery or for Ned Kelly. Yeah. Uh, Ned Kelly's ghost, yeah. <laughs> so to speak. Um, so can we segue that into Lucky Country then? I think we can. <laughs> Well, not musically tied in with the trilogy. I think it kind of answers some of the the problems being brought up. And not to sound like a broken record, but the last song on an album kind of bringing a little bit of resolution to things. Isn't it talking about the better life in spite of the problems and concerns that we've heard about in the previous songs? Yes, it's looking to perhaps a shorter work day or an easier way to get out of the problems. Um, it talks about, you know, getting those debts paid off. But it also talks about the beauty of living perhaps rurally in a beautiful land. It seems to be taking the viewpoint that Australia has a lot going for it. And I think the lucky country, and I may be wrong, but I think the lucky country in this song is reminding us, hey, we're in a good place here. We're living in this lucky country. And even as Pete finishes singing the song, it's it's not in the lyric sheet, 
but you can hear him talking about the hope at the at the very end of the song. Yeah. So apparently the phrase originated with a 1964 book uh, hmm. by Donald Horn. And uh, while Lucky Country has become a nickname, a favorable nickname for Australia, lucky in the sense that the natural resources, the weather, history... Yeah. Uh, that they're on an island, distant, uh, just that there's so much prosperity because yep. of all the resources. When Horn wrote the book, his intent was to document Australia's climb to power and wealth that was based on luck rather than any particular strength. We're doing good, but it's lucky. <laughs> Nevertheless, yeah, we're doing good, and we've yeah. got a lot of good stuff going for us. Yeah, Musically, Lucky Country, fantastic song. It's got a great intro. The bass slides all over the place. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And then soon they add in the pulsing keyboard, the drum assist to the song. This is just adding up to all the stuff that I love about what I will call 80s oils. There's a feeling I get when I look to the sun. The drum and the bass even though I think it's Martin playing guitar in the first verse there, they really kind of hold things together. It's a real solid rhythm section going on. Rob doesn't use his hats or his rides in the verses, so you got a real good thumping sound going on. Yeah. C- completely enjoyably musically to me. Then you get the key change. To bring up the intensity of the song. Yeah. Then at about two and a half minutes into the song, things kind of just drop off and you've got the pulsing keyboard. And that's where Pete starts his... Starts the rant. Yeah. The, maybe, is it the best rant he ever does or is it... It's one of them. Certainly the best... To this point. It's the best one on the album. Best one on the album. Pete starts his rant. Yeah. Rob starts to get his drum fills in there. Yeah, he starts and, and he's, stuff. he's It's like he's got his drum solo moment in there. Terracotta homes. Backyard barbecue and eucalyptus smell. It's fine on the clothesline. It's building and the, the rant is building and building. And then all instrumentation cuts out. Yep. And Pete's rant is just going full tilt, and this acoustic guitar comes in under him. This acoustic guitar just goes all wide on us. Yep. It's just, it's this big, big and acoustic then guitar. The chorus comes in, and we all get to sing along with Rob. Yes, lucky. One thing about Lucky Country is both of the verses seem to be about it. it's hard to tie these verses in with the the main theme okay. of the song uh speed and this there's a feeling i get when i look to the sun uh, and when you just say speed mm-hmm. i'm thinking is that like driving you know racing mm-hmm. down yeah when i listen to place without a postcard i can't help but think of a lot of the imagery from the mad max films mm-hmm. and it's these little moments of driving like the music is driving mm-hmm. but you know how there's certain certain music feels like a driving song. Yeah, you know what I'm talking yeah, about? A road song. It's a road song, yeah. And it's interesting. There's little snippets of it here. Oh yeah. Uh throughout this album. 
I can't help but think of certain visuals from the first Mad Max movie. Yeah, there's this memorable scene of Max coming and talking to his police chief or a former, he's quitting. And so I think about that and then hitting the road. Yeah. Um, so there's there's certain moments from that original movie that always come to mind when I'm listening to this album and make me like this album even more. Yeah, when I think of that, I, I, I'm just thinking of the ruralness. So what, what would the smoke in the distance reach as the eye line? I don't know. Could it be a bushfire? Yeah. Could it just be... It could like, be a bushfire. Um, like the dust being kicked up? I don't know. Why would you Sp- call it smoke? Smoke. I yeah. don't know. Yeah. I don't know. It's, it's a wreck from the outlaws. <laughs> the car battling outlaws. <laughs> Final thoughts on Place Without a Postcard. Yes. I enjoy this. This, I think that we're really, as I mentioned earlier, we're getting into this new era of 80s oils. Um, we're seeing some of the things that that, we, that have been hinted at in past albums coming together. We're, we're seeing the band going in slightly new directions, new sounds. Even though they had some problems with the producer, working with the producer, I think in the end we've got an album that is is definitely a step forward um something that i really enjoy yeah like jim said in hindsight it really was good glenn knew what he was doing uh they just at the time didn't didn't know it so let's play the game what are you going to do i'm presenting you with place without a postcard are you going to take it and discard head injuries or are you going to keep head injuries i will take place without a postcard and discard head injuries. Not that many years ago, mm-hmm. Place Without a Postcard was definitely my favorite Oils album. Yep. Like just three, four, five years ago. I'm not sure anymore. I think I I listen to it so much yeah. that, that I'm <laughs> it's it's hard to it's hard to know now. But I know I would definitely it was definitely my favorite album and so I'm going to keep it or I'm going to take it overhead injuries. Yeah. I'm going to do the same thing. Uh, for me, um, it's easy. We're getting to this era of oils that I think I really love a lot. And this is just another step towards it. It's easy for me to say, yes, um, place without the postcard. I'll take that over head injuries. Although I really do enjoy the intensity of head injuries. And as much as I like where they've gone with place without the postcard, I think they're, they're, it, it suffers a little bit from a lack of intensity. I'm still going to take it. Yeah. And with that, it's time to retract the stylus, slide the vinyl back into its sleeve, and say goodnight until next time, when we'll be listening to the oils 1098 from 1982 on Comfortable Place on the Couch, a Midnight Oil podcast. Remember, you can subscribe to Comfortable Place on the Couch wherever you find good podcasts, and you can get in touch with us on the Twitter at Darren the Folds and at Robin Harbin. Show notes are online at darrenfolds.com slash podcasts. So, for Robin Harbin, I'm Darren Folds. Good night. Good night.
Hey there, this is Robin, and I want to tell you about a project I have. It's called Place Without a Computer. Now, you might not know this, but I'm a nerd. I grew up in the 1980s. Besides Midnight Oil, my other thing was playing video games and then programming video games. In addition to that, even since the 80s and the 90s, I've been writing songs about nerdy topics. And one of my projects was making an album called Place Without a Computer, which took my favorite Midnight Oil album at the time and did sort of a tribute to every song. They're not parody songs, uh, they are original songs, but each one has a spark from the original tracks and it's telling my nerd origin story. So if you're nerdy like me and love the oils, you might want to check out my album. My band is called Bedford Level Experiment. Darren and I are going to do a special podcast just about that album. It's so special that it is not a real uh, comfortable place on the couch episode, and we won't be including it in on iTunes, uh, but we will link to it in the show notes. So uh, if this interests you, give it a listen. Thanks.